This is heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Uh, my name is Selena Hill, and I'm super happy to be with you here today, guys. Um, welcome to Be Heard Talk. Of course, this is an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of trap music, a Sadish decor, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, we discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and we give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and we will read them throughout this show. And for the 2020 election season, we've partnered with Black Enterprise as our official media sponsor. Again, I'm Selena Hill. I'm also the digital editor at Black Enterprise and the founder of Be Heard Talk. And I'm super excited to have you here have all of you here with us today because we have a very special feature guest. Her name is Natasha Williams. She is the New York City Council candidate, the founder of the New York City Black Women's Political Club and a community mobilizer. So she will be here with us momentarily. But before we get to Natasha, let me kick things off by introducing two of my co-hosts, my two co-hosts to the show. Standing, Starting with Stanley Fritz. You about to lose your job. You about to lose your oh, job. Oh, my bad. You hear that, Selena? You about to lose your job. Cause you are detaining me. I don't know where that's coming from. Hey. 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 Alright, I'll turn it down. I'll turn it down. My fault, Selena. Yo, I don't know where the noise is coming from, Selena. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> Why the music plays in the background? Let me just say, my name is Stanley Fritz. I'm your favorite engineer on the PC ones and twos. You can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on IG on Stan Fritz. Sorry, sorry. Totally irresponsible of me. I don't know how that music started playing. I'll turn it off. It's off now, Selena. As I was saying, my name is Stanley Fritz. I am the New York State Political Director at Citizen Action of New York. I am the engineer on the PC ones and twos, even though I've been fired by the brilliant, amazing Anaya. And I'm here to talk to you about politics, social justice issues, and why it's okay to be a sore winner. It is very okay to be a sore winner today, guys. Happy Sunday. Ah, thank you for that, Stanley. We are all very joyous, obviously, because Donald Trump is no longer in office. So thank you for starting things off with you about to use, lose your job. Um, we also have with us Tammy David. Hi, everyone. What a beautiful, beautiful Sunday to be alive. Oh, it is incredible to be blessed and Black and living in a blue state. Thanks, y'all. Hi, everyone. My name is Tammy David, and I'm your problematic fave here on Be Heard Talk. And even though I've spent months telling you how whack Biden is, and even though he was not my first, fifth, or even eighth choice of the Democratic nominees, I was out there with the best of them yesterday, including Selena Hill, popping my WAP for democracy. Yes, we did it. It is worth celebrating that the next four years will not be dominated by an orange fascist. And 
essentially, we're going to be harassing Biden to get us what we really want, which is progressive policies. But we are allowed to celebrate. Now, before we get to before we get to all of that, uh, it's time for the news roundup, the part of the show where we bring you stories that had us cheering in the streets, laughing on our couches, and lighting now legal joints. This week, we're talking legalization, celebrating Biden's win, and discussing the latest from America's problematic fave, which is Dave Chappelle. For more information on these or any other stories, and to suggest what we should talk about next week, Follow and DM us at Be Heard Talk across all platforms. Now, before we get to our joyous news, we have some tragic breaking news uh, for the nation. Alex Trebek, the iconic quiz master that has led and hosted Jeopardy for the last several dozen years, has fatally passed away from his bout with pancreatic cancer. He was just 80 years old. Um, you know, we knew that he had cancer and several people had asked him, you know, are you afraid of dying? What comes next? And he's always held it together, especially for his son, Matthew. Um, you know, what can we say other than it sucks to lose an icon? So I'm going to bring my co-hosts in to kind of talk about how we're feeling about this. Selena, how you doing? Yes. Well, you know that, like you said, he was suffering from pancreatic cancer. Um, Alex Trebek, he lived a very full life. He was 80 years old. So I kind of feel like this is just, you know, as tragic as it is, I think his life is worth celebrating. I think that, um, you know, in the spirit of Black folks, I would look at this as a homegoing service, um, you know, something that is unfortunate, but I'm so happy about the legacy that he left here. So that's what I would have to say. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch TV during school days, except for Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and whatever came on PBS Channel 13. So I am very familiar with Alex Trebek. This is a big deal. Um, but yeah, he was 80 years old. He lived a long life. He was also a civil rights activist and organizer. And if you look at pictures of him when he was young, he looks like a biracial king, but apparently he's fully white, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, rest in power to Alex Trebek. Thank you for all the great things you did for us. Um, as you can see, I'm so upset my screen is shaking. Um, we're really going to miss you, but, you know, it's been a great time and wishing love and peace to his family who, you know, lives on his legacy now. Thanks, y'all. Sending lots of love and light. And for those of you in the New York City area, please go support Oso in Harlem, which is actually owned by his son and wow. an incredible place to be. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, up next, uh, I've just heard word that Natasha has joined us. Yes. Selena, yes. can I throw it to you to intro her? I'm so excited to meet her. Absolutely. So once again, folks, we have with us our future guest, Natasha Williams. She is a New York City Council candidate, currently running a campaign in Queens, New York. She is also the founder of New York City Black Women's Political Club. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Hi. How's hey. it going? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. I'm super Absolutely. My favorite people. Well, man. yeah, no. Of I always feel like I'm at home when I'm talking to you guys. Man, how you pull up here? You're here on 10. The glass is on 10. 
The make no, I got I got to run a campaign or try to look like a candidate. For love <laughs> Can you please your foot off my neck, but release some pressure so I can breathe, all right? <laughs> anyway, Nantasha, I'm so glad to have you here with us, especially to talk about some of the news stories that we've been faced with this week. So can I just start by asking, what did you do yesterday when you heard the good word? Yeah, so I um I actually had to take time to like stop and think about the symbolism. So yesterday I actually had a video shoot and um a photo shoot for my campaign, um, which was planned before. Who knew that um, you know, Pennsylvania was gonna certify and um take Biden over? And I was like, wow. Like, what are the odds that I'm over here trying to kickstart my campaign and this whole effort that the work is still needed? We still have to keep, you know, get the job done. Um, getting Biden in office isn't it. Um, so just just the whole symbolism of it all. Like, I think I just took a second in route to the next uh, place I was shooting to just say, wow, like we really did that. Um, and now what's next, right? Like not even missing a beat, just kind of like what's next? What does this mean for black people specifically? I'm so, so happy that you're focused on what's next because like a lot of progressives, right? There was cele celebration in the streets. I mean, as soon as we heard the tally from Pennsylvania, like all of us as New Yorkers, we heard the cowbells, we heard the singing, the honking, the bike bells, the yelling, you know, people went to brunch to celebrate. Um, different countries started reporting. Everyone was sighing with relief. But, you know, as soon as we kind of got that out of the way, a lot of people were wondering, okay, what's next? Because Trump in a flurry of tweets began attacking the election results. Republicans and people even on his team like Jared Kushner began pushing him to concede and wondering what the Senate rule would look like. And progressives started thinking of how they would organize exactly to get what they want from the Biden administration in the next four years. So while we're all celebrating and we are extremely ecstatic to have a blue president, we are still awaiting results from Georgia's hotly contested Senate race because we need the Senate for progressive legislation. And we are waiting for the House to be secured blue. Now, while we look to organizing, Republicans are looking to pouting. A lot of them are still out there defending conservative values and agreeing with the president that this election is indeed a fraud. So, you know, you brought us this, Natasha. Stanley, what is it looking like on the ground? Like, do you predict the Senate actually flipping? And since the House results haven't been announced, do you think that there's a chance that we might lose the House? No, the House is secure. The House is secure. Democrats will have an eight-person lead. The question is what their politics are going to look like with that, with the reduced lead, because folks are already trying to blame progressive politics for it. The Senate is a different story. There are going to be two runoff elections in Georgia to decide those Senate races because John Ossoff, his race against Bill Perdue, Bill Perdue was at 50% up until about Friday. He dropped to 49%. And in Georgia, if you don't get 50% of the, of the vote in a, um, in a Senate race, it goes to a runoff. So there are going to be two big elections in Georgia in January. So we got to pull up again, Georgia folks. I've been cracking on y'all all pandemic because y'all ain't never closed. I love you and I need you to secure the Senate bag. Because if you can do that, then we will get the Senate majority and then we can pass a stimulus. So I'm, I'm really 
nervous but excited about that. But as far as what Biden can do, Chuck Schumer mentioned yesterday that they're proposing Biden forgive on day one $50,000 on everyone's student loan debt, like right, right off the way. He doesn't need legislation to do that. It can be an executive order. So as somebody who owes Sally May a couple of coins, I'm really hoping that they do that. Um, Senate Republicans don't want to work with Biden at all. So if we can get a tie in the Senate, that means Kamala Harris as a vice president is a tiebreaker. So if we can't get the majority, that's the second best scenario. And you can potentially pass the stimulus with that tiebreaker. So fingers crossed and see what happens over there. Fingers crossed. And thank you so much for, as always, an incredible political analysis. Uh, shout out to all of you leaving comments right now. I want to especially thank one of our loyal viewers, Bianca. Um, for those of y'all who don't know, Bianca actually voted in Pennsylvania. So thank you, sis, for securing that state. We so appreciate y'all. And thank you to all the viewers who are, you know, thanking us for our work through the election. We recognize y'all, we appreciate y'all. Now, Selena, what are some of the things you're looking forward to seeing Biden work on most? I know that we're gonna be pressuring him with progressive policies, but there's really a lot that we've been asking for this year. Oh, you're muted. Thank you. Obviously criminal justice reform. Um, I think that's a big issue. Um, as we know, black voters, um, particularly black women have remained loyal to the Democratic Party. And we just want to see some um, something something reciprocated in return. We want to see, um, you know, criminal justice reform. Obviously, um, there's other issues uh, in the black community that we want to see when it comes to access to healthcare, access to education. We just no longer want to be the neglected um, and the forgotten communities that continue to show up regardless. And I think that we learned those lessons from 2008 and 2012. And I think that as a result, people are already starting to organize and realize that the real work starts now. Yes, we were energized. We went to the polls uh, and we voted Biden into president into the presidency, which he can thank us for. But now it's time it's time to really um, up the ante when it comes to pressure and making sure that our community needs are heard and our agenda is is a, a addressed this time around. Well, let me let you know that this progressive and everyone on this show has already vowed to keep our foot solemnly on their necks to make sure that we get what they're looking for. Another big election win that we should definitely talk about uh, is being lit. Now, jokes aside, I know a lot of people were drinking this week, smoking this week out of anxiety or stress, but quite a few states actually just legalized marijuana for recreational use. Um, Sadly, still not New York. Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota were the latest to bring the right to use, um, bringing the state's tally up to 15 states. Now, one state, however, is worth mentioning because they truly outdid them all. In a first in the nation, Oregon has rejected charging drug users with criminal offenses, with voters passing a ballot measure that decriminalizes possession of heroin, methamphetamine, LSD, oxycodone, and other hard drugs. Now, Drug Policy Alliance, the group behind Measure 110, has declared this initiative, rightfully so, the biggest blow to the war on drugs. Now, before we send people to Oregon to get lit or, or whatever else y'all are ready to do, let's break down what this really means. So basically, if you are caught with a drug 
you will not be charged. Now that doesn't mean that you can buy drugs at local coffee shops or that it's any easier to attain. What it means is the creation of new policies to deal with drug offenders that sideswipe using the legal system. So instead of charging and jailing offenders, dealers and users, Oregon is opting to expand addiction recovery centers and healthcare access for those with issues that are either exacerbated by or create the need for drug use. The state is predicting that this law will restrict the number of people with job and housing insecurities, which is usually brought on by unnecessary bouts with the law. Also, this may eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system as a whole. Now, as y'all know, when weed was legalized, the first people to benefit from it were who? Rich white people. And the, the people who usually don't get charged in drug charges are who? Rich white people. So while this is a new concept for the U.S., several countries have already successfully tried this initiative. While Portugal, the Netherlands, and Switzerland have already decriminalized possession, Portugal's numbers are extremely hopeful. So they've reported that drug use remains overall stagnant, so it doesn't create new addicts. But drug deaths fall significantly while the number of people treated for drug addictions rises. So with a country like ours that has a significant problem with addiction, Oregon is once again leading the way with a solution. I wanna start with you, Natasha, because you are a candidate in a city that you know, arguably has quite a bit of drug use. Um, how do you feel about total drug decriminalization? And do you see this as a trend that may come to New York? Well, I think <clears throat> it's a conversation we need to have. One of the first things that I worked on when I worked for the New York State Assembly with former assembly member Kareem Khmer was decriminalizing marijuana. Um, it was a bill that Hakeem Jeffries had, but then he went to Congress, and so Kareem took over the bill. Um, and this was almost seven years ago, um, and it was right before um, they started advocating to legalize um, medicinal marijuana in New York. And the same conversation was had: it's you know, how do we legalize marijuana without decriminalizing the drugs? And I know. Um, Oregon took a huge step because it seems like it's all all drugs, not just marijuana. But um, I think we still need to even have that conversation, right? New Jersey just legalized marijuana, which is literally what I can get to Jersey in like 20 minutes. Um, but what does that say about decriminalizing people who are currently incarcerated um, for marijuana drugs? So I think if we definitely need to have a conversation. I am for decriminalizing drugs, um, especially, you know, for drug users, not folks who are actually selling the drugs. I think we need to have a conversation about that, but I am for decriminalizing um, drugs to the extent that we're trying to legalize certain drugs and people are actually becoming um, rich off of, of the sale of drugs. Stanley, do you think that drug decriminalization actually aids people or does it just make it easier to access? Yeah, no, it 100% it, it aids people because drug addiction is a disease, it's a sickness, it's like alcohol addiction, and you need support, you don't need incarceration. What I think is funny though, is that when you were dealing with a crack epidemic in black communities, we criminalized it, but now it's white people who are the ones who are dying and overdosing on drugs, and all of a sudden we understand that you need to give people the right supports so they can take care of themselves, and now we're decriminalizing it. 
And also you'll notice the states with the most progressive drug policies tend to be homogenous states. And what I mean by that are states where there's really only a dominant one racial demographic. Um, in Oregon, Portland, it's mostly white people. It's like 3% black people there. So it's a lot easier for them to legalize it there or decriminalize it because you have fewer people worried about getting, giving rights to black and brown folks. So it happened in Portland and I'm happy for them. I'm not confident in how successful that would be in New York State. We're having trouble just getting it legalized here. And Selena, to wrap the conversation, let's comment on what Stanley said. Now, Oregon is primarily white. And as we know, the opioid e epidemic is a huge spur of this progressive policy. I mean, it's mainly white people who are suffering from opioid addiction. Do you think this initiative was a result of that? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, racial politics um, affect every single thing in this country. You know, this country was embedded on white supremacy and it continues to reign supreme. Um, I do want to just note that, you know, Measure 110 is arguably the biggest blow to the war on drugs um, to date. And I'm happy about it because I do think it will have a domino effect. Uh, and also Oregon, Oregon was the first state to also legalize marijuana back in 1970s. Um, so they've been pioneering in this space for a long time. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, you know, speaking of the drug addiction in this state in particular, one in 11 uh, residents of Oregon are addicted to drugs and nearly two people die from an overdose every single day. And when I, these statistics are alarming. And I feel like, yes, one of the first steps in addressing this epidemic is um, decriminalizing it so that these people can get the help they need. But what are some of the underlying issues that are going on? Like when I read that, I was just like, hold on, what is going on in society? What is going on in this state? What is going on in, in our country where people are, you know, addicted to drugs at alarming rates, committing suicide, um, and, and also, um, you know, overdosing? Something's wrong. And like, yes, we need to take these steps, but there's a lot more work we need to do. Yeah, I think the answer for that is pretty simple. It's called racism. So when people were going to the hospital, doctors were more likely to give white people super strong painkillers than black people because hospitals and doctors and nurses tend to think that black people are more, they have a higher pain tolerance, so they don't give them that medicine. And then these pain medicines were highly addicted. And when white people couldn't get access to that anymore, they had to find another way, which was heroin which is significantly cheaper and easier to get. And then you got a whole bunch of heroin addictions. And then when heroin got really popular in these same white communities, they started mixing it with fentanyl. Why? Because fentanyl is cheaper than heroin. And then they were mixing it wrong. A lot of people were dying. And all of a sudden now you had a heroin addiction crisis in white neighborhoods and also a fentanyl addiction. And the only way you can really address it and give people the services they need is if you show that they are addicted and they are not a criminal. So what do they do? They change the laws. Now, before we wrap up the news roundup, I just want to leave you with this little nugget of information. Like Stanley said, addiction is not necessarily just, you know, a personal issue. It is a health issue. It is a public service issue. So if you're struggling with addiction, please call the SAMHSA hotline, the National Helpline, 1-800-662-4357, and they'll be able to get you confidential free help from public health agencies. 
Thank you so much for everyone who stayed tuned through the news roundup. To hear what we thought about Dave Chappelle's monologue last night, follow us at Be Heard Talk and check out our Instagram stories. Now I'm gonna toss this to Selena so that we can get to the main segment that we've been dying for. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much for that, Tammy. And yeah, I want to just say that people are celebrating in the streets. Obviously, there's a lot to celebrate. Donald Trump is no longer president. And I'm super happy Stanley kicked off the show, just sort of reflecting the mood and the sentiment of this time. This is a photo at the White House where, you know, hundreds of people came out and drove uh, to say, Donald Trump, you are fired. You are about to lose your job. I actually was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and I shot some video footage that I want you guys to see. Um, you know, I started off at Central Park. I walked down the street and all of a sudden I saw so many people in the streets waving flags of pride, uh, Biden and Harris. We even started doing the Cupid shuffle. Um, it was, and it was also, a, um, I don't want to say a multiracial co uh, coalition of us, but it was mostly white folks. Obviously it's the Upper West Side, but I think it was so heartening to see that, especially because we know that it's been white people who uh, in, um, elected Donald Trump. And again, they came to the polls again <laughs> in 2020 to keep him elected. So we're going to play some of those clips and some of that footage that we have. And I know, shout out to Tia Mari Witted on Facebook, who just says, bye Trump again. These celebrations were going on all over. I know Stanley yeah. was able to get some as well. He was downtown in Manhattan, uh, even in Harlem. Um, it was all over. So we definitely want to just talk about that and just share that sentiment. Because, you know, for me, I, I wasn't sure that Donald Trump was going to be, um, you know, out of a job. I really thought he was going to be reelected. So, you know, when those election results came in, I think it was about 1130 a.m. Eastern time. Um, I, you know, people were shouting, people were screaming, people were, you know, in the street celebrating it. It felt like almost uh, that Obama was reelected. Do we have the clips? that we could play <laughs> yo i was riding my bike because i was in harlem when i found out and i was just gonna ride from like my side of harlem to east harlem to see what was going on so i rode from my side i'm on west harlem i rode to east harlem it was turned up over there old spanish ladies dancing with each other people in the street celebrating then i went to central harlem to little africa it was lit kid over there and then I rode back to my neighborhood and rode all the way down to 59th Street, Columbus Circle. When I tell you there was a party on every block, people were popping champagne. They were passing out redacted because, you know, marijuana is not legal in New York State yet. There were cops crying. Hey, it was wonderful. I got to Columbus Circle. There was wall-to-wall -wall people. There was music blasting. It was, I'm telling you, for someone who was in college when, when Barack Obama won his first election, it wasn't quite as magical as that night for, for black folks. I think that night is a little bit different for all of us, but it was pretty damn cool. It was a great vibe. I'm glad I got to witness it. 
Yes, absolutely. So, you know, even though we're celebrating this time, um, I also think that it almost felt a little bittersweet, this victory. First of all, the election was prolonged, the results, as we know, and, and most of us expected because a record-breaking number of early voters came out and cast their ballots, um, either, you know, by voting, excuse me, by mailing in their ballots or, you know, just doing early voting. But I feel like it was disheartening to see that, you know, Donald Trump, again, was this close to victory. Um, it was black voters and particularly black women that came out in droves to save the soul of this nation. And while some of political operatives and some others thought that this election was going to be decided by Donald Trump's mythical all white suburbs and some of those stay at home moms, it was Joe or Joe Biden's ability to actually convert them. It was instead a racially diverse coalition of folks in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada. Arizona and Georgia. In fact, Black people who make up 39% or more of the population in those areas, they chose Joe Biden. And it was because of that. It was because of those people in Philly, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Atlanta that he reached 270 electoral votes. Exit polls also revealed that 87% of Black voters back Biden compared to just 12% for President Donald Trump, which is why he won. And also, according to the exit polls, Trump claimed about like 18% of the vote from a black men and 8% from black women, but it, which was an increase from 2016. But again, because Joe Biden maintained nearly 90% of our vote, he won. And though it was great to see everyone coming out and celebrating in the streets yesterday, the fact of the matter is, this country is still very racist. And the fact that a president who is widely viewed as racist, as according to polls, uh, the fact that he commanded so many white votes, even after downplaying a pandemic that killed nearly, excuse me, over 230,000 Americans is chilling. But it was Trump's ability to make this presidential race so close um, that, you know, so close after what America has seen and heard these last four years that really showed us that white people, they have ignored and will suppress and deny explicit racism in order to hold on to white supremacy. So that's the angle and the lens that we really wanted to unpack uh, the 2020 election results. And that's the, the discussion that we really want to have here on Be Heard Talk. And I want to, you know, open this conversation up to the panel. I'll actually throw it back at you, Stanley. Were you surprised by the election results? No. Um, and I'm assuming you're asking me about how many white people came out and supported Trump. Yes. No. They did a poll a couple of weeks ago, and it showed that Trump still had over 50% of the of white voter su support. I'm not surprised at all. White people, in every single moment they have had, will always choose supremacy over their own self-interest. And the fact of the matter is, we need to do a lot of work for white people. We need to be organizing a white rural community. And when I say we, I don't mean my black behind or any black person on this panel, the white folks. That's y'all problem. So the white people who are celebrating on 148th Street and Broadway, take it behind somewhere to Erie County, New York, go to Alabama and talk to those white folks because white supremacy is not just going to kill them, it is going to kill all of us. And this false dichotomy that white people voted because they don't like socialism or crime. It's BS. It's because of white supremacy. So I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised that 
68 million people supported Donald Trump. I've been saying it for the last four or five years, white people are racist. I think my point has been proven with an election now. Tammy, I wanna throw it to you now. Why was this election so close? <laughs> because that's easy. Why would people wanna change the status quo that is working for them? I mean, the people who are not disenfranchised in this country will do and let me clarify, white people with money, power, and privilege who are not disenfranchised in this country will do whatever it takes to hold on to that power. Now, you know, I it makes sense to me that so many people voted for him. And I, I was surprised at the results because honestly, I thought more people would show out to protect that power, but our side was clearly stronger. Now, People with a vested interest like racism or um, their financial gain on the backs of like third world countries, those are the people showing up, donating, making sure that their conservative interests are at play. So that's why they're showing up. That's why they're protecting it. Um, we actually have a comment from Latanya Woodson, uh, who is a PH, who actually holds a PhD via LinkedIn, Latanya says, racism is alive and well. And I did just want to uh, acknowledge that, uh, Latanya, because we agree here on the panel. And thank you so much, guys, for leaving it, those comments. Keep them coming. We will continue to read them throughout the show. Uh, Natasha, you know, same question for you. Were you surprised by the results, the number of, you know, people who still came out and support him, and the fact that Donald Trump nearly won this election? Lena, I think I was more like you. I just wasn't sure that we were going to be able to pull it off um, because the Democratic Party is rather interesting. Um, and Joe Biden, um, by any means, was not the candidate um, of, of, of gab or choice, especially for me. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't shocked. I think I was really I think the thing that was really shocking to me um, is how close he was in, in various states, right? Not just the states that we're talking about, but even in New York. <laughs> I was, you know, we're blue and that was cool. But like, if you actually go and unpack um, the numbers, if you look at specific areas, even right here in New York City. So I'm not even talking about upstate New York because that's a whole other conversation. I'm not even talking about Long Island, which is like the whole island is pretty much red. But I'm just talking about even in New York City, if you look down and I was looking in Queens and looking at how certain areas voted. I mean, Donald Trump got plus 40% here, right here in New York. And so I think I was more so um, just taken aback at just how close it was across the country um, and just solidifying this thought that yes, racism is real um, and that it's we're really split. Um, and I think there really needs to be, and Stanley was getting to this, this, this um, changing of minds and hearts, right? Like there's clearly something happening with people's minds and hearts and, and it's specifically around race. Um, and how do we change that? How do we get people to recognize that it's not just about your whiteness, <laughs> but it's about other things that impact you too? Um, mm. and so, yeah, I think I was just more so shocked at how close it was just across the country, um, not just in these specific areas, but across the country, it was really close. That's why we got to give up on a white vote, honestly. If yeah. the Democratic Party spent more time focusing on a Hispanic vote and cultivating and doing more for the black vote, we'd be much better off. If we know that we're going to get about 40% of the white vote no matter what, and the rest of them are going to go for white supremacists like in a Republican Party, 
and Donald Trump? Why do we keep trying to speak to this mythical Rust Belt white voter who feels bad about racism? This election showed us that it doesn't matter what you do, they're still going to vote for white supremacy. Meanwhile, Biden won Pennsylvania because of black Philadelphia and black Atlanta and Flint mm. and black Detroit and black and brown and indigenous Arizona. So like if white folks want to vote for their own demise, leave them be and focus on the people who understand what's happening here. You know, Stanley, you brought up a great point. Um, you know, Tammy, Stanley is saying it's time to for the Democratic Party to stop trying to court white voters. Um, you know, I don't think they would take such a radical stance because they have proven themselves the establishment is, you know, very moderate and conservative. And we even see at the DNC how many Republicans did they have speaking? So, I mean, yeah, I agree with Stanley, but is something like that even feasible? What are your thoughts, Tammy? I don't agree with that sentiment because unfortunately white people, well, that sounds kind of mean, but you know, white people do make up the majority of this country. There are predictions that, you know, POC will be the majority at some point given immigration and, you know, interracial marriages and childbearing, but we are well off from that. And unfortunately, if we want to progress our agenda, we have to get to the people that are holding us back. Now, you know, I, I work with, I used to work with someone who I'm really close to. He's a white male organizer. And I remember in college, he was saying that he's always had this dream of organizing in the Rust Belt and in Bible Belt states. And my sort of thought to that is, well, why don't you? Like white people are the ones who should be busting themselves out during elections to all of these states where it seems like white voters are not on track on pro protecting even their very own interests and they should be doing the work because consistently in terms of the organizers actually showing out, it is POC progressive organizers. And we've proven with this election that we can collect our people and we can collect the majority, but it's too close, which means that white people, we, we can give up on white voters because that's not our job. But the majority of white people, the white people claiming that they are the good ones and they are not racist and they wanna protect our collected vested interests in progressive politics and racial equality, those are the people who should be doing the work, not people like us. Natasha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we have to find some type of balance. Um, I think the problem with the Democratic Party and why Black women push so hard to have a Black, because let's let's be clear, Kamala wouldn't be there if it wasn't for advocacy that Black women did behind the scenes to ensure that we had a Black woman VP. So I do think um, there is something to be said about acknowledging Black folk in the Democratic Party. But I think we need to find a happy medium. I think the party needs to prioritize and put resources behind other communities, particularly communities of color. Um, but I do agree with Tammy that we can't just um, ignore the, the white vote. I just think that they don't, they shouldn't be prioritized. <laughs> we shouldn't be prioritizing um, getting white folk to suddenly care about um, issues of people of color um, for votes, right? We need to organize, better organize other groups of people. Stanley, Natasha says, and it sounds like Tammy as well, don't ignore, you know, don't, don't forget about the white vote. Just don't prioritize them, which is a slightly different take on what you're saying. Would you at least agree to that? I don't think, I don't think it's very different from what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. We censor white. You said forget. 
Are well, they saying just don't prioritize? Well, pardon me. Yeah, let me not say forget. Let's not prioritize them. They're not important. They don't vote right. Let's put them last. You know how the Lincoln Project got $67 million to flip Republicans to vote for Trump. Trump got higher Republican votes this time than he did last time. The Lincoln Project is going to use the rest of that money because they didn't spend all of it. They barely spent some of it. They're going to use that in 2022 to primary good progressives. So you know what? Put them last. White people don't need to be on top of anything. You know who we need to be talking to? Hispanic voters in Texas. Hispanic voters in, in, in Florida. Those those white Cubans who forgot that they still they still are people of color, no matter how good they feel in the little bubble of Florida. That's who we got to be speaking to. Because the fact of the matter is, we've seen now. We have seen. There's not been a Democrat to win the majority of white votes since Kennedy in 1963. So why waste your time making these corny commercials to make the white guy who drives a big truck punches holes in his wall and tells his wife who to vote for to come support us when you could put that energy into Javier, who's Puerto Rican, and is here because Trump messed up Puerto Rico and now he's in Orlando and could vote for you? Let's stop playing these games. What about like Tamika, who's out in Flint, Michigan, organizing for clean water? Why don't you focus on those people and get their votes? Because turnout in black communities and in brown communities, it hasn't even hit the ceiling yet. It was high, but it could be higher. And we could very easily win a lot more races across the country if we focused on those people. Well, great point. And you know, Stanley, when you were talking about uh, some of the people that we should not be prioritizing, um, you know, it kind of, you know, those those type of white voters, because they're still going to be here and they're still going to have these thoughts. Well, there's another type of white voter that's also still going to be here. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, even though Trump may be defeated, Trumpism and the brand of white racial grievance that he promotes and has been successful in spreading and, and emboldening is here to say, it's here to stay. So what does this mean for American politics moving forward, Tammy? So I think Trumpism is a very unique American perspective that sort of plays a part into populism, which countries all over the world are seeing. There's this idea that being a disgraced, poor white person is a total mistake. And Trump speaks to those people that you know, love charisma. They love the easy way out of things. They feel like it's easier to place blame on abstract concepts and people that they don't understand versus actually doing the work to change a system that also doesn't favor them. Trumpism is certainly here to stay because it's perpetuated by capitalism, which is the system that runs the world. As long as there are haves, there are the have nots. And Trump is someone who uses the have-nots for his agenda to promise them the world that he cannot give them. Not only that he can't give them, but that he's actively using to step on and to get even more. So like Trumpism is a phenomenon that we need to break down by moving towards you know, progressive politics. And the 
honestly, the interesting racial part of that you can see in different parts of the world, right? Because immigrants are coming here and they have to do more to integrate into our society and to climb up, you know, socially, financially, etc. It is so easy for white people to just blame it on like race or immigration or the Dems giving our jobs away to foreigners. But the fact of the matter is that capitalism is bleeding itself out and Trump and white people like him, rich white people who don't want to take blame and also don't want those people losing out to learn that it's them doing this to them, are using racial uh, epithets and problematic speech and behavior to cast the blame and scapegoat it elsewhere. Unfortunately, that ideology is here to stay for a while, I think. Um, you know, Stanley, um, the Daily Beast reported that top officials in both the Democratic and Republican Party have said that, you know, Trumpism is here to say that brand of politics that uh, Donald Trump, you know, talked about again, which is unapologetically racist, uh, xenophobic. He just basically it's almost like that Archie Bunky, Archie Bunky type of uh, character. It's just being white. Let's just call it what it is. White supremacy. Well, well, I will say, well, there's a difference in it because he was, no, he was more emboldened. Like I'm trying to say that other candidates, at least in my generation, I've never seen another candidate come on a political stage and say uh, Mexicans are racist and, and, and are, are rapists and drug dealers. I've never seen another candidate say things like, you know, these African countries and Haiti are asshole countries. That's the type of brand of politics he was pushing. Yes, their policies uh, may have been racist and may have disproportionately hurt black communities, but Donald Trump definitely took things to a new level. No, I mean, Donald Trump, like the only thing the other politicians did was just clean it up with gaslit language. The policies are the same. It's just white supremacy. Trumpism is just loud racism. Like, let's be honest about what we're dealing with here. And the fact of the matter is Democrats and Republicans are very comfortable with it because it's the world that helps them to uphold capitalism. All those people who don't wash their feet, who have crusty elbows and maybe have sex with their siblings that voted for Donald Trump, they're not going anywhere. And the rich people who also want to keep their money and who are also white, they're not going anywhere. So we really have to go on a big campaign to do anti-racism work to help poor white people understand why calling someone the N-word and voting for a white supremacist does not help your life. You need to be working with black and brown people for your own liberation as well. But we can't get there until they understand that white supremacy is a problem. And Donald Trump makes them feel good about themselves because I might be poor. I might have diabetes. I might need an electric wheelchair to move around. I might smell. I might be related to my son because his mom is also my sister, but at least I'm not black. And that's the work that we have to do. That's all Trumpism is. It's the stuff you hear when you go to Suffolk County, Long Island, when you go to Southern Brooklyn and you're in Bay Ridge, when you go to Texas, that's all it is. It's not some new thing. Natasha, uh, racism is not new. It's as American as apple pie. Uh, but as to Stanley's point, it's louder. You know, Trumpism is a louder form of racism that is more bold, more unapologetic. And we've seen how that how that's amplified in his base and emboldened his base and the, the MAGA type of supporter, um, you know. So, so what does this say about politics moving forward? The fact that this brand of politics was so successful, are we gonna see this moving forward now? 
I definitely think we're going to see it moving forward because um, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still here. And he set a precedence, right? He, he said, you can be loud and racist and you can almost win your reelection, right? Like that's what Trump says. And so I think we're definitely going to see that. We have so many Trump supporters who are now in office um, and I'm sure they're going to keep up with that same ideology. It's not going to go anywhere. And I think what you're seeing is it's, I just watched a movie before um, joining this and the guy, it was, I like action movies. So the guy is literally on his death. He's been got shot like 50 times and he's still trying to like, you know, pick up his gun to shoot people. And it's like, that's what I feel like whiteness is right now. It's like, they know that they're literally like, they're like, they're dying out. Like, you know, white supremacy is something that's like, it's on, it's, it's, it's still well, it's here, but it's like, it's, it's, it's dwindling significantly. And I think they feel that, like, that's the energy. Um, and so they're like, literally like fighting to the death, right? Like they're going to do everything in their power to maintain um, um, this type of order uh, because they know this order is coming under a major scrutiny and challenge. So whatever they can do to maintain this order, that's what they're going to do. And I think that's what we're fighting against. And I think it gets back to what Stanley said, which I love. He's so prophetic all the time, um, which is we really need to have these, we need to change hearts and minds. Um, and I think sometimes in politics, when we talk about policy, we're talking about things on a piece of paper that, you know, Joe Schmo. Um, in Arkansas may not understand, right? Because we're not changing his heart and mind around an idea. We just have this particular policy and we're expecting that this policy will change everything, but we forget the human touch. And so I think politically what we need to do is we need to continue to organize. We can't go back to sleep. All this amazing organizing that's been done, especially around communities of color, we need to keep that going. Um, and then we need to organize other communities, but the heart of that is changing their, their hearts and minds. We really have to change the way in which people think. I mean, I don't want to go down a whole soliloquy, but I was shocked by some of the things that I heard between, you know, Ice Cube and all the conversations that was happening on socials around that. It's like there's something happening with hearts and minds and how that affects policy and politics. Yeah, can we be honest about the men? I'm sorry, Selena, about the black men who support Trump. It's not because no one's listening to them. There's a few of them who feel like no one's listening to them, and we can work on those folks. But the most, the majority of the men who are upset, the black men who are upset, with the Democratic Party, they are mad because what we're fighting for would not allow them to have the same power that white men had. They're mad because we're pushing policies to support the LGBTQIA community. They're mad because women have more rights. They're mad because we're not censoring men and black men. That's why they're mad. And that shows you we need to do a lot of work on dealing with patriarchy and misogyny. But the, this idea that we're ignoring black men when there's a 22 page document that outlines what the Biden-Harris administration would do for black people is complete BS. Tell Ice Cube to lotion his elbows and go to therapy. Um, thank you for that, Stanley. And you know, we could not have this conversation without talking about black women and in particular, Stacey Abrams. In fact, we wouldn't be having this conversation because Donald Trump would have been reelected president. You know, I started this show talking about um, the, the predominantly black communities that came out in droves and got Joe Biden elected. And we talked about Atlanta. But it was Stacey Abrams who, if you ask me, had her campaign for governor stolen from her in 2018 because of voter suppression. And instead of shying away or dimming her light, she decided to take a stance. And through her organization, she increased voter turnout. She literally, as a result of her work, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, particularly minorities, registered to vote. And because of the efforts 
um, they actually came out and they did vote. And Joe Biden can thank Stacey Abrams and her work in particular in Georgia uh, for the lead that he got there. And I wanted to talk about that, uh, especially with you, Natasha, as a woman in politics, you know firsthandedly that, you know, being a black woman was not something that was always welcomed or inviting, even in the Democratic Party. We don't see enough uh, black women running or being supported in the Democratic Party. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, Stacey, Stacey Abrams, uh, black women, the fact that we came out again to save this democracy? And do you ultimately think that all our loyalty will be reciprocated. Yeah, I'm I am I am remaining optimistic. And I say that because um if you look at the Biden campaign, if you even look at, you know, who they chose chief of staff for Kamala Black woman, um if you look what look at what Stacey did, um and again, I said this earlier before, if you look at the fact that we even had a black and Indian American woman as VP, that was because of the advocacy of Black women. So I think the Democratic Party knows that is a very important constituency that they cannot ignore. Um, I was also looking at Joe Biden's like transition team. There's a you know, very important a Black woman on, on his transition team. And so I think I'm optimistic. Um, what I do feel, though, is that we have to literally like keep the same energy, right? So we can't be like, okay, Kamala's in office. You know, we got a few Black people here. No, 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 no. We have to keep the same energy. We have to continue to hold the Democratic Party accountable. This is the time to not sort of go back to sleep and say, yay, Black women won. We finally arrived. No, because we know there are issues that are very unique to Black women in their communities that still have not been addressed. We know that Black women are still not um, where they need to be in terms of power and placement, um, in terms of decision making. So I think this is the time for Black women to double down and continue to organize ourselves to really, really push the needle. But I know the Democratic Party, they're not stupid. They're well aware of what has happened. Um, for me, I'm just remaining optimistic for what they'll do next. Um, and so that's that's my thoughts. Um, Robert Weicher from Facebook says, Biden can thank Harris for getting the black vote. If his VP was, was white, then mm. Trump would have won. Um, so, you know, thank you for chiming in there. Uh, you know, Tammy, Natasha says she's optimistic about the Democratic Party. You, on the other hand, have been very vocal, a very vocal critic of the Democratic Party. Are you optimistic at all? Nope. Honestly, no. And the reason is that Dems are using their same old tricks as before and refuse to be, well, Let's put it this way. Dems are fighting so, so hard against the very progressives and the very people that get them elected. Black women and black people in particular showed up and showed out to protect this vote. And they may have given us Harris, but it took damn near a long time and a lot of begging for that. Now, did Biden concede a little bit to progressives? Did he work with Bernie Sanders? Yes, but there's a lot that could have been done. Now, even more people are saying, you know, we shouldn't have used the word socialism or socialist in this election and that it cost us a lot of Democratic votes. Why is that the case? Like, I think Democrats are not open to change and it's people like Stacey Abrams who are necessary to keep doing the work to make sure that at the very least, the people showing up to support them can continue to support them. 
Now, if Democrats really cared, they would have fought a lot harder to keep Stacey Abrams' platform in Georgia much stronger. Like, I do think that she was robbed of the governor's seat. I do think that she's consistently robbed of the respect that she deserves. And I think it's really telling how whole groups go unnoticed until they show out in millions. Now, I'm, I'm optimistic about my generation, you know, our generation, millennials and, and Gen Z, who are pushing the status quo to accept this sort of new reality that many of us are poor, many of us are dying, we need free healthcare, we need student debt relief. Uh, we need people to not turn away people at the polls for no reason. Uh, we need to remove cops from the situation where they can, you know, intimidate voters. Um, but it worries me that the democratic establishment isn't moving forward with these initiatives. It worries me that it's organizers who are going so hard for this and that the Dems are seemingly pushing back against this. Because the Dems worked so hard and honestly successfully so to court moderate Republicans, I'm worried about what the next few years will look like because they made promises to those people too, promises that directly abash the progressive promises that I was kind of hopeful for. So I would say I'm less optimistic, but that doesn't mean that I will stop fighting or discourage people from fighting because I do think there needs to be accountability. So Franklin Eric says, uh, he chimed in via LinkedIn, Stacey Abrams broke the barrier in Georgia. Can't forget the great late, the great late John Lewis who passed the torch and fought for our people, African black Amer Americans up until his death. Thank you so much, Franklin, for chiming in. Stanley, I want to get your thoughts here. We're hearing, you know, two, um, you know, different sides about, you know, being optimistic about the, the Democratic Party moving forward. Where do you stand? And um, what does the Democratic Party need to do in order to make sure that they don't forget about the black vote and black women, you know, again. Can I actually throw it to Natasha first? I know she wants to respond to Tammy. Yeah. I'll be very quick. <clears throat> I agree everything with everything you said, Tammy. I'm just optimistic that perhaps they'll listen a little bit more, but by no, no means do I think, and that's why I keep saying, this is not the time to say, okay, yay, they get it. Let me go back to sleep now. And like, this is it. no, like, I think we need to like, literally keep the pressure on them. Like, hey, organizers really handed this to you. Hey, black women really handed this to you. What are you gonna do for us? And use this win to further our fight and our message. Mm. So that's, I just want to clarify that I agree with you. I'm just optimistic that because once again, we delivered and once again, we worked really hard to make this happen, um, that we as the people who made this happen, continue that fight. We don't go back to sleep and we use this win to further our goals. Yeah. And we need you on the council, girl. We need yeah. you on the council because look at what happened with the defund initiative. Bloop. That's a big example here in the city. And like so. Well, 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 and and just to um, because I know we are getting down to the wire, and you know, just to move things along, uh, you know, Tammy, you know, there was a report that came out that a number of Democrats from moderate states or more conservative states that won um, House seats, they said that the defund campaign. Um, actually hurt their chances and that they barely won. So I don't, you know, I, as much pressure as we're putting on the Democrats, I think that they are answering, you know, there's a certain degree that they are answering to their constituents who are still not educated enough and still view a lot of policies as too radical and too progressive. And they have to answer to that. Um, 
So, but we do have to just wrap this conversation up before we do, you know, what are the next steps moving forward, Stanley? We won this election. Obviously, we, we need to think we are indebted to Black women in particular, but what needs to be done moving forward so that this country can move towards progress for the next few decades and that we don't, we don't go backward like we did after electing Barack Obama and then having Donald Trump? It's very simple. Power conceives nothing without, without a demand. It never has and it never will, which means we have to continue to organize. You think Trump was just doing this stuff because he was this racist and stupid? Sure, some of it, but those Supreme Court justices, those judge picks all across the US, he got those people in there because the right pushed him to do that. And we have to be prepared to push Joe Biden to do the same thing. Right now, the Biden administration is talking about forgiving up to $50,000 in student loan debt for all Americans who have student loan debt. Why not make it all of it? We should be organizing him and the administration and pushing them to the left. As far as stuff like defund and the police reform work needs to happen, the fact of the matter is for most people, defunding police was a brand new conversation that popped up after George Floyd. Anyone would tell you, and when you're building a campaign, it has to be a multi-year campaign because you need space to educate. Now is our time to educate, to flip the worldview, and get more people on our side. The Democrats are 100% wrong if they think that people voted for Trump because they didn't want to defund the police. They don't even know what that means. And no one has, no one in the establishment has done the work to do education, and they won't. So we need organizing. It always comes back to organizing. Tammy, final thoughts on what needs to be done moving forward so that we can continue to look forward to progress in this country. Besides organizing, I want to say education, because I feel like a lot of liberals, like I've been making fun of this all week, a lot of liberals now that Biden won are going to go back to their little cubby holes and drink their white wine, go to brunch and just vibe like everything's okay. It's still not okay. Like on a local level, New York has crazy rates of income inequality and poverty. And this is something that is unacceptable to me as a local organizer. But I need to acknowledge the fact that I don't know enough about national organizing and I don't know enough about the pockets of people that overwhelmingly either voted for Trump or had no idea what comes next. And so I would say if there's a particular issue that is on your mind, do the research on it. Google local organizations that talk about, you know, student debt or racial inequality. I know I, for one, am going to lean on the Southern um, the Southern Poverty, the Southern Poverty Law Center to research racial injustice on a national scale and what can be done to reach all of those people that voted for Trump overwhelmingly. Um, and besides that, I'm going to keep my eye on local politicians. Just because New York is blue, that doesn't mean that our elected officials are going to keep pushing for progressive issues, but I'm going to make sure that they do. Natasha, I'll give you the last word. Um, again, as a woman who is running for uh, an elected seat as an elected official, we know that obviously you are doing all you can and going above and beyond to make sure that politics and democracy works in the favor of people of color in particular. But what else? What 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 advice, what nuggets would you leave for all of us watching who say like, yeah, this was a great win, but what about the next four years? What about the next 40 years? Yeah, I think we need to listen. Um, and we don't spend enough time listening to real people that have real issues and working to solve those issues. 
Um, and that's that's what I'm about, right? I don't have all the answers. And, you know, we talked about education. I don't know everything, but I'm, I want to listen. I want to hear what you feel your issue is and let's figure out how to solve it. Um, another thing that I always say is what does it look like to campaign um, when you're not campaigning? When you're not actually going to say vote for this candidate, but you're just campaigning about particular issues like bailing out students, right? Like, what does it look like to literally do all this energy, all these things that we do to get people into office? What does it look like to do grassroots organizing just to simply educate people and organize them around issues? And I don't think that we do that. I think we spend a lot of time and energy around elections, um, but then after elections, we don't sort of keep the same energy. I think that's like my theme. We don't keep the same energy. We don't organize people around particular issues. We don't educate them around the issues so they can be informed. We don't even sort of educate them on how they can use their power as a voter um, to sort of push for change. And we don't listen. And so I think that's particularly for me, where I want to see things go. I want us to kind of continue to organize people, continue to educate people around issues because it's very nuanced. So you're if you're not studied, you don't really understand what people are actually trying to say. And you don't understand that it can actually have a positive impact on you. So let's educate you. Let's organize you and let's listen to what you have to say as well. So it's like a mixture of what Tammy and Stanley said, because this is what I've been saying. Like, what what's next? How do we sort of continue to get people to stay active um, and not go back to sleep? Thank you so much for that, Natasha. A hundred percent agree with you, sis. And I just want to end by saying, you know, this election proved a lot. Not only did it prove the power of Black voters and Black women, and I'm going to continue saying it, I don't care if I sound like a bro broken record, but it also proved that a white president could go as far as refusing to denounce a far-right group that's been labeled misogynistic, Islamophobic, and anti-immigration during a debate. He actually told them to stand back and stand by. And millions of white folks still came out and voted for him. It also proves that despite the fact that he told non-white congressional women they should go back to their crime-infested places where they came from, that's a quote. Um, and he also told neo-Nazis in Charlottesville that they were very fine people, that again, millions of white voters won't care and will still go out and vote. And the fact is that the fact I mentioned at the, you know, earlier in the show, he called Africa, you know, Haitian, Haiti and Salvadorian immigrants that he said that they all came from S-hole countries. Yeah, millions of white people did not care, right? They, they don't care. But I feel like even though that's a grim reality that we're suffering from, and yeah, it just reaffirms that, yeah, America really is that racist. It shows the power, the collective power of what happens when we come out, organize and mobilize, and we take this country back. Because the fact of the matter is, it was built on the backs of our ancestors. Um, you know, we deserve to be here just as much as anybody else. And I think we're all getting to a point where, you know, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And yes, we voted in Biden and Harris. And for the next four years, we're going to show them that, you know what, you work for us or else you won't be reelected. Donald Trump was a one term president. And I have no problem telling this current administration the same thing. You will be a one-term president. You will have a one-term administration um, if you do not show up for us in the way we need. We are sick and tired. 
So on that note, I want to thank everyone who chimed in to be her talk today. Thank you so much for the comments. We saw them all. We just couldn't read them all, but appreciate that. I want to thank again, Natasha Williams. Um, Natasha, really quickly, how can people support your candidacy right now in New York City? Yes, well, you can't do anything without money. So <laughs> that is the biggest thing. Um, so you can go to my website, www.natashawilliams.com. Um, make a donation, sign up to join my listserv. Uh, we'll have some volunteer opportunities as well. Um, send me a prayer up, you know, whatever you can do. But yeah, www.natashawilliams.com. Oh, on Instagram, it's at Natasha2021. Um, yeah, and just, just whatever support you can offer, um, advice, right? I keep saying I want to listen. Like, I really want to hear from people. Um, I'm not one of those people that say I have all the answers. Um, I want to also listen to other uh, other thoughts um, and other solutions to the problems that we're facing here in New York City. Absolutely. So, again, guys, we'll see you again next Sunday. Continue to stand up and be heard. Thank you.